I was wondering why it was taking me so long, and I asked my brother-in-law, he says, Chad, it took me three years. Okay, I don't feel so bad. <clears throat> we're only 19 months in, and we're all the way through chapter 12. Today's our last message from John chapter 12. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we ask for your mercy and blessings. We approach your word that we'd be given your spirit to understand that you'd open our minds and teach us to submit ourselves to your word, to believe your word, and to reap the benefits thereof. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 12 ends, <coughs> uh, John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50 is what I'm trying to preach today. Uh, and what had happened right before this, probably some of you remember, Undoubtedly, some of you do not. There had been an argument. <coughs> uh, he had been talking to the people. He had been, uh, they had argued about, they said, well, you say you're going to be lifted up. We heard the Son of Man is going to live forever. So why, how, who is the Son of Man that you say is going to be lifted up? We heard that the Messiah, that is, the Christ, abides forever. How is it that you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They understood that that referred to his death, that he was speaking of his crucifixion. And his answer at that time was, you've got light, you need to believe in that light, uh, otherwise you're gonna be blinded, that you'll cease to be able to see light. And he quoted Isaiah in saying that, and that's what we talked about last week, <clears throat> um, about light and blindness and what causes that spiritual blindness. So, they were still having a problem with this. They said some of the Pharisees had believed, but some didn't because they were afraid they'd be kicked out of the assembly there. Um, they wouldn't admit that they believed because it says they, in verse 43, it says they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were afraid of the consequences of letting the other Pharisees know that, well, actually, I think he's telling the truth. I think this is the Messiah. <clears throat> So Jesus spoke up, verse 44, says, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but in him that sent me. <clears throat> and he that sees me, sees him who sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hears my words and believes not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now that doesn't say he's not the judge. He is, but right then what he was doing is offering himself as a means of salvation, as the only means of salvation. He is the eternal judge. He says, however, he that rejects me and receives not my words does have one that judges him. The words which I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That there's going to be a constant testimony against unbelievers that you heard and you, you rejected it. <clears throat> Verses 49 and 50, he says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father who sent me. He gave me a commandment, and what I should say, and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. <clears throat> now, it's a fairly powerful <clears throat> passage, I guess you could say. It does three things. It identifies and equates Jesus with the Father. He said, if you believe on me you're believing in him if you see me you've sent you've seen him <clears throat> it identifies with his 
his word, Jesus' word with the Father's word. Just He says, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So he's, he's telling them, whatever you hear coming out of my mouth is coming directly from God. Now, I'd like to be able to say that about me, but it's not true. I make mistakes, and I say things just because that's the way I feel. So you don't want to believe something I say unless you see it in God's word. I try to make sure that anything I speak from the pulpit is coming from God's word. But on a, on a general day-by-day basis, I'm made out of the same kind of mud as every one of you. you know? I'm just a man. Jesus is God in the flesh. And what he's telling them is that what comes out of his mouth is the word of the Father. <clears throat> the third thing is that his Father's word is equated with eternal life. He says his commandment is life everlasting. Now, it seems in terms of logical order, and in light of the fact that he's already been identified as the living word, we remember from John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then after a little bit, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And prior to that, in verse 3, he says that all things were made by him, and apart from him was nothing made that was made. So we see him as the light, we see him as the word, we see him as the creator, we see him as the only source of life, right there from the first four verses in John chapter 1. But the first thing he did here is identify himself as being one with the Father. He makes statements to the effect that if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. He says this over and over. And if we say that on a human level, if somebody's son looks just like their father, uh, you say, you see him, you've seen his dad. Well, that's not exactly true because his dad is 20, 30 years older or whatever uh, than the son is. But in this case, it is literally true. From Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which we quote at Christmas time all the time, it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called uh, Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That the Son is the everlasting Father. Now, I have a hard time with that because, see, from a physical point of view, that, that doesn't make sense. It's not just physical. We're talking about the eternal God, the Creator, and He doesn't have to fit the physical rules of our lives. <clears throat> he's, he's the author. But Jesus had already claimed to be deity as well. In John chapter 8, verse 57, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they understood that correctly as him using God's eternal name, the, the YHWH, the Tetragrammaton, the, the, the great I am. And they, they were going to kill him. They accused him of blasphemy. They were going to kill him. As we've observed before, if someone makes such a claim, and it's really clear that is what they're saying, they're claiming to be God, there's only three possibilities. One, obviously, is that they're a liar and a blasphemer, and that's what the Jews judge Jesus to be. They're, if they're knowingly and falsely claiming to be God, then that's blasphemy. Yes, it is. And that's what the Jews assumed Jesus was doing, and they were going to kill him. <clears throat> the second possibility is that they're mentally disabled in some way, and they're not really responsible for what's coming out of their mouth. They're just, you know, the old word would be crazy. Uh, we're not supposed to say that today. It's not polite. But the fact is that 
the people that were insane said insane things. And no, that doesn't make them to be God. It means that they're to be pitied. They're not to be blamed for the words that are coming out of their mouth. They can't help what they're saying, and they don't understand what they're saying. Probably some of us have run into those kind of people. <clears throat> I ran into a fellow. I asked him, if, if you were to die today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? And I was probing for, do you understand the gospel? Do you know Jesus died for you? Is that your answer? His answer was, well, I'm not going to answer him at all. I'll just go around him and go my own way. I thought, okay, this guy's not thinking straight. Okay. And, and he didn't. He, his, his mind was pretty well gone. <clears throat> but the third possibility is that this person really is God. Right, And there's only one person down through history that could make that claim, and it was Jesus. But that's the third possibility. If they really are God, then first place, they need to be prepared to prove who they are. And Jesus spent his whole life proving it. You know, stopping the storm with his, own, with his word. Anybody that understands anything about physics or even has just worked with water knows that's impossible. Water's heavy. Once it gets moving, it takes something to stop it. I remember watching a little little bitty wave come come up on shore and hit a, a low concrete block wall. It was probably three blocks tall. It knocked it over like it was nothing. When that wave hit that block wall, it just blew over. It was gone. Okay, water's heavy. It takes a lot of force to stop it unless you have the authority to just speak and it stops of its own accord. You see, we have hard, we have a hard time with that kind of authority. So did the disciples. You remember what happened when they were in, the, in that storm together? They were commercial fishermen. They knew they were in deep trouble. They were out on the Lake of Galilee. It was a huge storm. They knew they were in trouble. Uh, they were experienced boat handlers and experienced fishermen. And they woke Jesus up and they said, Master, care us now not that we perish. And he stood up and said, Hush to the storm. He said, why did you doubt, O ye of little faith? And he told the storm to knock it off. And it stopped right now. You see, the inanimate objects of our universe leap to obey their master. In fact, we're not in real good company. You see that we and the demons are the only things in the history of the universe that have ever disobeyed God. Think about that. <clears throat> So he identified himself with the Father. Once we know that that's who we're dealing with, once we know that, yeah, that is God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, speaking the words of the Father, then we have some choices to make, don't we? The, the, the disciples had some choices to make. You want to remember that Judas was very likely in that boat with the, the other disciples. It just says the disciples. It doesn't say that he was or wasn't. But he heard all the things that the other disciples heard, and he saw all the things they saw all through Jesus' ministry, pardon me, I'm getting the hiccups here. <clears throat> and yet he didn't believe. And we're going to address that this morning. Jesus said that. People have a choice to make. Once they've identified that this person is God, then they have a choice to make. So the next thing he says that he identified his word with the word of the Father. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him who sent me. When we sing about this every Christmas, we sing word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. 
See, everybody's familiar with that phrase, but we just sing it over and don't realize that Jesus is the word of the Father appearing in flesh. And that's who was speaking to them. <clears throat> we, when we read John 1.14 where it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> We're meditating on something that's almost unimaginable. See, just the idea that, that God's spoken word could take on human life is, is just... I have a hard time getting my head around that idea. We shouldn't have a problem with that. But God's spoken word, we, if we look back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, by faith we understand that by the word of God, the worlds were created. And not of that which already existed, that they were created out of nothing. That he just spoke it into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be water, there was water. He said, let there be dry land, there was dry land. He just, he spoke it into existence. So it's no big surprise when Jesus had that authority to speak the, the storm out of existence. And yet, <clears throat> the idea that that spoken word could become a human child growing up as a human man and becoming our sacrifice forever, we struggle with that concept. <clears throat> But think, if his spoken word can create an entire universe and everything in it, if it can cause that whole universe and everything in it to just spring into being just because he said so, just as a manifestation of his imagination, I guess, then it seems a very simple thing to accept that his spoken word could also take on physical, biological life itself and be a human. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when Jesus spoke, the people were hearing literally the voice of the Father. He is the voice of the Father. He's the first and final communication of God to us. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, and, and God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, hath spoken unto us in these last days by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. That's how he spoke to us. And by the way, when he spoke to the fathers by the prophets, it was still just the word of Jesus coming through them. When Abraham fed this guy on the road to Mamre, uh, it just says beef and butter and bread and milk. But I always say a beef sandwich and a glass of milk because that's what I would do with it if I had beef and bread and butter and milk. But that was Jesus. He talked to him face to face, and he called him, he addressed him as the judge of all the earth. And in John 5.22, Jesus says, The Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And then verse 23, he says, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who sent him. This is a fairly critical issue, the identity of Jesus. <clears throat> God did speak through a variety of prophets over the millennia, over the thousands of years of history. But now his final communication has been revealed, and it's God the Son, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. That's who they were hearing. <clears throat> so if they believed him, they believed God the Father, because he was and is the, the word of the Father. Now in Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God, and that God counted that to him, his faith counted, was counted as righteousness. Righteousness. 
And whether you know it or not, that's the only way God has ever saved anybody in the history of the world. You place your trust in him, and he accounts it as righteousness to your account. <clears throat> Think about it. The thief on the cross, what did he do? Go get baptized? Nope. Go do some good works? Nope. Um, get dressed? I mean, he's hanging there stark naked and nailed to a cross, being executed for his crimes that he committed. The only thing he could do is to place his faith in Jesus. And he said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay. That's all we've got, folks. Some of you, I shared a, a video last week. Uh, this is Irish preacher. I can't think of his name. Beck. Beck. Say it again. Alistair Beck. Beck or Beck? Beck. Beck. Okay. His conclusion was that this thief on the cross showed up and actually paradise was not then heaven. It was the place of the righteous dead and Sheol. But still, he shows up there and somebody asks him, so what, how'd you get here? He says, I don't know. And he says, what do you mean you don't know? Well, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, do you understand the, the concept of salvation by faith? I don't think so. Um, I'm going to go get a supervisor. And this angel runs off, gets a higher angel, comes back and says, so, so tell me, do you understand the concept of justification by faith? No, never heard of it. Uh, do you understand the concept of a substitutionary sacrifice? Says, no, I don't think I ever heard of that either. He says, well, how did you get here? He says, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Amen. Folks, that's all we've got. Yeah. It's because Jesus said so. It's his authority, and it's our, we, we lay hold of that promise by faith. That's it. <clears throat> so the only difference between, the dividing line between eternal judgment and eternal salvation is that faith. We either hear and believe or we don't. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that tells us a couple of things. There is a condition. You, you can't believe in what you've never heard of. And it also, there's a responsibility involved that because we have received him as our Savior, he gives us the responsibility of telling others so that they can hear and believe or hear and reject. That's their option. <clears throat> but Paul's response to that in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I am a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. And in verse 15, he says, So I am ready to, to, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He considered himself to owe that to the whole human race. The third thing Jesus did is he identified his Father's words with eternal life. Jesus said in verse 58, he says, I know that his command, uh, 50, excuse me, I know that his commandment is life everlasting, John 12, 50. And this isn't the only place where he makes that kind of comment. In John chapter 17, verse 3, during his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now, some of you might find it interesting to know that the Greek word that's translated know there, that they may know thee, the one true God, is the word gnosko, and it means an experiential relational, ongoing knowledge. It's not just knowing about something. Uh, 
if I say, do you know, and name some famous character, you'll assume, and rightfully so, that I'm, I'm asking, do you know about him? You know, uh, if I ask Miss Jan about some famous musician, yeah, she'll know about him. I might not, but she will. Uh, but she doesn't know him personally, at least most of them. I mean, there's some that are before even her time. <clears throat> I got to be careful here. I'm teasing her. She's just a little bit older than I am, not much. But the Gnosko knowledge means knowing him personally. In fact, in Acts, when the seven sons of Sceva were going to try to throw out a, a demon, and they knew that Paul had been casting out demons by the name of Jesus, so they thought they'd try that too. Now, they were not believers. And they said, we adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And the demon answered them. And it says, Jesus, I know. And he used the word gnosko, I know him personally. Paul, I know, it says in King James, but he uses a different word. It's the word ido, which means I know about him. I've heard of him. I know who Paul is. Jesus, I know personally. I've known him face to face ever since he created me personally. He says, but you? I got no idea who you are. And says, this demon-possessed man jumped on these seven guys and just beat the bejabbers out of them and tore their clothes off so they ran out bleeding and naked. And I laugh every time I read that passage because they were, they were treading on ground they had no business treading on. They were using the name of Jesus, and they had no authority to use the name of Jesus. And they got in trouble over it. But here we're given the option to buy into what Jesus stands for. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And we can get into that personal relationship with God by faith, <clears throat> by believing him, just like Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. He declared him to be a righteous man. The thief on the cross believed in Jesus and was promised eternal life that day. Starting today, you're going to be with me in paradise. But faith leads to more faith. As we choose to believe Jesus for salvation, we start believing everything about him. We start learning more about what he has to say. And we start growing in our faith. And the result is that we grow in our experiential knowledge of him. And that gnosko knowledge means that we get to experience eternal life in the here and now. We're not just, well, I think I'm saved, so whenever I die, I'll start eternal life. No, you started eternal life the day you trusted Jesus as your Savior. And he expects you to be walking with him and growing with him so you can experience the character of that eternal life today, every day. It's not supposed to be something pie in the sky when you die, like that old bluegrass song says. That's not the way it works. Jesus made a promise in John chapter 5, verse 24. And if you would, I'd like you to turn there. <clears throat> it's an important promise to understand. I've shared it a lot of times, but it's just so vital. John chapter 5, Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death into life. Now, it's one promise, but you'll notice there's two conditions to the promise. What are they? He that heareth my word and believeth on him who sent me. 
You hear Jesus' word, you believe God. That's, you fulfill the two conditions. So what does he say the three clauses of the results of those fulfilled conditions are? Number one, it says, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, has, not will have when you die, has eternal life. This is not something where you've got to wait till you die to find out. There's lots and lots of people that teach, <clears throat> well, you can't know for sure you're saved. You can't know for sure you have eternal life. Yeah, you can. Jesus said so. Not only that, God says he wants you to know. Not just can know, he wants you to know. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11-13, through 13, he says, This is the record that God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. And these things I have written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, not hope, not think, not wish, that you may know, that you have, present tense, have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is permanent security. He promised that if you hear him and believe him, you will never again be condemned by God. That's the next clause. The first one was that you can have eternal life now. But the next one is about your future. He says you will not be condemned by God ever. He says you shall not come into condemnation. When you read about the various judgments in the Bible, they don't apply to you anymore. They did. They don't now. Okay. You have eternal life now. You do not have to wait till you die to find out, and you're never going to be condemned. And that should be a great source of, uh, of encouragement and assurance for broken, damaged, and wounded spirits like ours. We've been, we've been condemned from our own uh, opinions of ourselves by human disapproval from other people that have said, well, I'm a man of God, you're a man of the world. Okay, I've heard that. You know, I've heard other people condemn me. Uh, but God says that I'm accepted in him. We've had spiritual onslaughts from Satan himself. We've had self-doubt, thinking I'm worthless. How, how can I ever measure up to what God wants? Jesus measured up to what God wants. You're accepted in him, not in your own doings, not in your own abilities. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says that once you have entered into this relationship by faith, you are accepted in the beloved, accepted in the beloved, not on your own, on your own merits. Ephesians 1, 7 says you have, present tense, redemption. You have, present tense, forgiveness of sins. Those are all true of you because you're in Christ not because you're a good guy, okay? <clears throat> this is all present tense. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there is ne therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. This is part of that same promise that Jesus made. He says, you shall not come into condemnation. And the third clause is, he's crossed over from death into life. Now, I could say that's past tense, that it's, it happened in the past and, and it's done, and that's true. It's not exactly just past tense. We don't use this structure in English very often, but it's called past perfect tense. It means there was a completed action at a past point in time that has a continuing effect on your future. It means it's permanent. It means you can't go back and undo it. It's a done deal. You've crossed over from death into life, and you can't go back even if you wanted to. 
which, God help you, you don't want to. <clears throat> God says that once you belong to him, he's eternally on your side, and you're permanently connected to him. He'll never let you go. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, He has said, I will never leave thee, nor will I ever forsake thee. I love that particular passage because in Greek it actually does something you can't do in English at all. It uses a double and a triple negative. It uses, um, what do you call them, prefixes. Two negative prefixes on forsake and three on, uh, actually two on leave and, and three on forsake. Uh, in fact, that song we sing, How Firm a Foundation, the last verse makes it obvious that the writer of that song knew this because it says, That soul which on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. There's that double and triple negative. And folks, that's exactly what Hebrews 13.5 says in Greek. We can't do that in English without doing some double and triple negatives that work against each other in English. But God says he's never going to let go of you, period. Jesus says you're permanently crossed over from death into life, and he confirms that in John 10, 27, 28, when he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, period. That's a pretty precious promise. <clears throat> Finally, by doing these three things, by equating himself with the Father, by equating his, his Father's word with his own word, and equating his Father's word with eternal life, ultimately, the daisy chain says Jesus is eternal life. That's the connection we have to make. That Jesus' word is eternal life, and that Jesus himself is that eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 63, among other things, Jesus said, The words which I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, in that specific context, the people had just been arguing with Jesus about what he had taught regarding the bread of life, specifically about the passage where he says, He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Well, I don't blame them for being confused and arguing about that because people are still confused and arguing about that passage today. And there's people still teaching that taking communion is how you get eternal life. No, it's not. In fact, a, a lot of you enjoy C.S. Lewis's writings, and I do too, but one of his early books, Mere Christianity, he taught that the way you become a Christian is to take communion. No, you don't. What did Jesus say? He that hears my words and takes communion has eternal Nope. He that hears my words and believes on him who sent me. You're saved by faith. Saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Let's read the rest of what he says. He says, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. But then he goes on and says in verse 63, he concludes that. He says, It is the spirit that quickens the flesh profiteth nothing. The word quickens means brings to life or gives life. The spirit gives life. The flesh, that is anything you can do with your body, whether it's speaking or doing or anything, that, that can't accomplish anything. It says it profits nothing. The words which I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And he concludes, but there are some of you that believe not. In verse 64, 
and it's, it specifies that he knew about Judas already. Judas had been there for the whole ministry, but he didn't believe Jesus. He says, there are some of you who believe not. He says that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. So we've made some connections here through God's word. And we see that the word is spirit and life. Jesus said that his words were spirit and his words were life. And he concluded that there were some who had failed to believe, showing that their unbelief was what barred them from receiving the life and blessing that he was offering them. Failing to receive his word was what barred them from receiving the eternal life that he was offering for them. Now he is the word. When we go back to John chapter 1 again, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And before it gets to the passage that said, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, before it gets there, in verse 12, it says that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, that's actually verses 11 and 12. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them who believed in his name. That's how you become a child of God, is to place your faith in Jesus, to receive him. And God chose this way for sinners to approach him. That's the only way anybody's ever approached God, all the way back to Adam. Adam believed God's promise of this coming Savior the seed of the woman, and on the basis of his faith, God clothed him in the sins, in the skins of the animal that God's killed as a blood sacrifice, the first blood sacrifice, pointing to the cross. One great thing about this God-ordained path to approach him is that it can't be forced by anyone else. If a government sets up a, a state church and insist that everybody believe this. You can't force anybody to believe anything. See? So they can't set up a false church and make you believe that. They can't set up the right church and make you believe that. But it also can't prevent you from believing the truth. They can't tell you it's against the law to believe this. Well, they can say that, but they can't change the fact that you have perfect freedom to come to Jesus no matter who you are, no matter where you are. The only condition still remains hearing the gospel so see the one thing that they can try to control is the spreading of the gospel and ironically that's the part where we come in see that's our job i don't know if you know this but angels do not get to preach the gospel the only opportunities they've had they told they said send for a man they could not and will not preach the gospel that's our job <clears throat> Sharing that message is our God-assigned task. That's our part in the plan of God for the salvation of a lost world. So long as we are here on earth, we're called to be his witnesses and his ambassadors. We only have this one life in which to join Jesus in the work of reaching the world that he died to save. So when Steve gets here to talk with us two weeks from now, I think it's two weeks from now, February 5th, 12th, and 19th, uh, I haven't got a good calendar in my head. I don't know how long that is. I think it's two weeks from now. Um, what he's going to be telling us, what he's going to be teaching us is on a practical level how to share our faith with other people. And I feel a need for that. I've shared my faith with hundreds of people, but just a handful have received the Lord. 
where I know other people that every place they go, they open their mouth and somebody gets saved. Uh, I just think, what's wrong with me? Well, maybe nothing. Maybe it has to do with gifting. Maybe it has to do with my job is to sow lots of seed and somebody else gets to water and this other person just has the benefit in getting to reap all the time. I don't know. But I want to learn, and I hope you want to learn too. So he's going to be coming and sharing with us. In light of that, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask you to fix in our minds the urgency of telling other people how they can have eternal life, that it's as simple as this, that, that you are the, the word of the Father in flesh appearing, that you are God's eternal life being offered to the whole world, and that we are the ambassadors of God offering that eternal life through your word. We ask that you change our hearts so that we desire and urgently desire to reach out to others with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.